0: Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode spoke to me from Guatemala where he's continuing to work with the journalists, land defenders, and victims that contributed to the book, Testimonio, Canadian Mining in the Aftermath of Genocides in Guatemala. Here he is to introduce himself.
1: Hi, my name is Graham Russell, and I'm from Toronto, born and raised in Toronto. And um, have basically worked, lived and worked in Central America for the past 30 to 35 years. I haven't lived here before that entire time i lived down here for a long stretch of time but my adult life has all been dedicated to working on sort of north south global human rights development and environmental issues um, with a main focus on central america and a particular focus through my organization rights action on honduras and guatemala so i'm basically first and foremost the director of this U.S. and Canadian-based NGO rights action. And then I also am an adjunct professor at the University of Northern British Columbia, where, um, you know, I met and and worked with Professor Catherine Nolan on some of her coursework. Um, She's a professor in the geography department there. So that's the overlap with uh, the co-editor and co-writer of Testimonial.
0: Graham co-edited Testimonio with Catherine Nolan. Testimonio was a finalist for the 2022 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. In my conversation with Graham, we spoke about why we aren't talking about Canadian mining in countries like Guatemala and about the work he does with his NGO, Rights Action. Here's my conversation with Graham Russell. If you could read one book or watch one TV show... For the rest of your life, what would it be and why?
1: One book. Wow. This is, how much time do I have to mull <laughs> this over? Um, yeah. uh, a favorite. Um, I'm going to pick La Rose. Uh, first one that comes to mind by Louise Erdrich. And uh, she's a Indigenous writer uh in uh inside the united states so i guess an american indian woman writer lives in the north minnesota area and she is one of my go-to authors and i've read countless books of hers can't even remember them all but la rose sticks out and uh you say why i like that book
0: yeah if you yeah. can explain why <laughs> uh
1: When you get to be my age, one's memory becomes foggy, so uh, this will be the worst (laughs) promo for her book ever, but because she takes on the themes of uh, uh, the history of European imperialism and colonialism and how it played itself out, post-colonialism, and how that played itself out inside the borders of what's now known as the United States, the settings for all her novels are in that context. Some of her novels go back to the 1800s and 1900s and into the 2000s and then can't quite remember the dates of uh, the setting of La Rose but it is in somewhere in northern Minnesota and it's you know where there's a a, an indigenous community perhaps a reservation I can't quite remember living side by side with a a white uh, sort of settler colonialist community and they've been living there um, for, for eons, and so there's very good friends on both sides of the the line, even as there's this deep historical context of uh, racism, land theft, etc. Uh, the same stories played themselves out inside the borders of Canada, and so the La Rose is just a beautiful drama, like very moving, and two best friends, one indigenous, one non-indigenous, are best friends, farmers, hunters. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, get along perfectly. The kids grow up together, playing together, and then it starts off with a tragic incident that um, uh, between one family and the other, and it's hundred percent an accident, but it's devastating, obviously for both families. Huge loss in one family, huge guilt in the other family, but no, no, no intent. Clearly, an accident. And then the story just plays itself out through this unbelievable spark to tell this story. But then there's the whole backstory that comes into it. The decimation of the indigenous people of the Americas, et cetera, et cetera. And the book is fundamentally about um, uh, reconciliation and forgiveness through truth telling, of course, and, and honesty. But it's really a story about um, healing uh, and forgiveness, but forgiveness based on truth-telling and real reconciliation and um i just found it one of the most moving novels that, uh, i've read so that's the one that pops to mind i recommend to anyone la rose by louise erdrich plus any one of her other novels
0: yeah i i keep going back to uh love medicine is one of hers that i've mm. read a few oh, times Oh, there
1: you go right 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 yeah, right.
0: yeah. All right, uh, let's dive into uh, Testimonio. Um, I I wondered, Graham, if you could start by, uh, you mentioned Rights Action in your introduction, um, but could you talk a little bit more about uh, what Rights Action is and and the work that you do?
1: Uh, Rights Action is a small not-for-profit organization with, uh, legally speaking, so-called tax charitable status in Canada and the U.S., and I've I've been sort of the director of of a tiny, I think tiny. I'm down to one full-time staff person myself, which is myself. Um, for the last eight years, we're a tiny operation, but it works. And so for 27 years, Rights Action's been working significantly in Guatemala and Honduras and at different times in Chiapas and in El Salvador. And there's sort of two main things we do. Um one is we directly fund uh, community defense struggles with as much grassroots funding as we can get them. We're not a fund. We're not a foundation. We don't have an endowment. It's sort of a money in, money out operation, depending on donations. And as long as money's coming in, money goes out. And so, for example, and we can come back to this in the book Testimonial uh, Rights Action is it directly funds those four different mining resistance struggles. We're not the only funders. Some of them have a bit more funding, some of them a bit less, but our niche, if you will, is, is grassroots funding. We get funds into the hands of the people who are suffering the harms and violations in this case of the mining industry, because they're the ones that are A, suffering all the harms and violences and evictions, et cetera. And B, they're the ones sort of on the front line of their own community defense struggles. So there's a whole funding component that just is endless. And then to to clarify a definition, what I mean by community defense struggles, and this is um, true for all the the stories told in testimonial, these are at the same time land and territory defense struggles, uh, human rights defense struggles, and environmental defense struggles all at the same time so we just do relentless and endless funding and their needs are relentless they're extraordinarily poor people um they have so the the need the, what they need funds for goes from the health harms that they're suffering from the mining company the violence they suffer from the mining companies the forced evictions they suffer from the mining companies through to mobilizing organizing and trying to protest all of the above So there's a whole funding component that's endless. The second major component of the work is Rights Action focuses as much time and energy energy as we can on education and activism related to the community defense struggles. But all of our education and activism is, is aimed at Canada and the U.S., aimed at exposing how the Canadian and U.S. governments through our the government policies are contributing to these ills directly and indirectly, and then aimed directly at our companies, mining companies, sweatshop companies, for for export food production companies, etc. How our companies and investors are directly contributing to and benefiting um, from all the harms that people are suffering in the numerous community defense struggles. And then we try and motivate Canadian US citizens to a, understand this better and then get involved in sort of letter writing campaigns, political protest campaigns, and even legal cases in Canadian courts to try and hold ourselves accountable for how we're contributing to the ills um, that our partners in Guatemala and Honduras are suffering. So that's in a nutshell, the working model.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned, of course, Catherine in your introduction as well. Uh, Catherine is the co-editor of the book. How did the two of you first start working together, and how did that turn into working on this book together?
1: As part of my work with Rights Action, and this goes back to 1995, I I organize and lead three to four sort of educational fact-finding trips a year to Honduras and Guatemala. Sometimes we announce them and anyone can sign up and join. And if we get eight or nine people signing up and paying, then it's a go. Sometimes universities approach me, sometimes community groups, sometimes religious um, based groups approach me and say, we have a group of 10 people and we'd like you to host one of our trips. So I plan and host these sort of fact finding road trips. I call them magic school bus trips. Um, And it's really a road trip. Uh, whether it's Honduras or Guatemala or both, um, you you start off with one or two introductory days in the capital cities and get speakers to address the broad historical framework and the current political framework. And then you travel for five or six days, um, staying in little hotels and going community to community into the communities where they're suffering the harms um, whether it's mining industry or other sectors of the global economy, and listen, let them speak to us about what they think about mining, about hydroelectric dams, about coffee production, banana plantations, the like. And then at the end, there's a... Re- and, and all along the way, there's sort of an ongoing discussion and debate in the van. You know, what is our role as North Americans? It's mainly North Americans that would join these trips. What is our role? What is our government policy? How are we promoting this? how are we contributing to it, um, et cetera. And then you know, there's the wrap up at the end of the trip and the debrief, et cetera. And then through that, Catherine approached me um, in 2003 or 2004 and invited me to uh, co-lead uh, or, or to lead the in-country portion of this new course she was offering at UNBC. This was in 2004. So she was offering a course on Guatemalan geographical issues, global development issues, global human rights issues, global environmental issues, with a particular focus on Guatemala. And as part of her course, it was going to be a two week trip in the country to do this type of hands on learning. And it went well for us on the first trip, and then we never looked back. And and we've done, they're her courses, but I'm, I sort of lead the in country part. And we've done them, I think, 10 times in all from 2004 forward basically every two years sometimes it was every every year depending on demand or and then through that we became very close friends and then through that into halfway through we just started doing some follow-up activism together like uh, she would get involved when she goes home with her students in active letter writing campaign because we've documented so many harms and violations and rights actions already doing this work but uh, she and some of her students started adding their voice we'd start co-writing stuff and just chipping away and <laughs> getting nowhere fast and then through that um sometime in 2017 or 2018 after we had this whole body of you know eight or nine of these trips in under our belt so much work produced she's produced her own work rights action we produce our own works her students produce their works. She had one foot in the world of publishing and came up with uh, an offer to publish a book sort of summarizing all of this and she said graham would you like to be co-editor and i said yes please and thank you and uh it went forward from there
0: yeah and we'll talk a bit more about about the journey to get it published uh in a bit but it's interesting that you um you mentioned uh you know, truth telling in, in, in talking about La Rose uh, by Louise Erdrich because, I mean, the, as the book addresses and even as the title suggests, suggests, this book in a sense is an act of witnessing and and truth telling in itself. And I, I wondered if you could talk about the significance of, of that, of, of hearing these stories and making sure those truths are told and brought to a wider audience, um, Canadian readers, for example.
1: Yeah, it's 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 I mean it's almost like stating the obvious. It's just good reporting. Um yeah. this is truth telling, but it's good reporting. I think a couple of reviews have sort of called it provocative writing. And I kind of push back on that and say well no it's sort of a fact-based book. Catherine and my analysis is our analysis and so we interpret it our way, you know, in the introduction and 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 the and the conclusions and we think that our our analysis and conclusions make complete sense based on the facts as presented to us and part of sort of putting you know poking <laughs> certain issues is that if you know to take a it's not supposed to be a swipe at the media but if if Canadian media were providing regular coverage on the breadth and depth of of mining related serious problems across the planet going back generations now and 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 increasingly so then a book like this would be less necessary or not necessary because it would be known to the canadian public that uh the um there's very serious problems all around the globe particularly in the global south africa latin america parts of asia there is just repetitive patterns of the same stuff that we document in testimonial and it's a major canadian issue which is a major argument of ours in the book this is canadian policy this is canadian government policy canadian investor policy canadian corporate policy and a fundamental lack of political oversight in canada and the fundamental lack of legal accountability in canada it that's why it merits the media attention it's not like it's not a canadian story it's just Utterly, mining is utterly a Canadian story, though the harms take place in Guatemala in this place, or an endless list of other countries with other companies. And so to you know be a bit repetitive, if the media were giving it the coverage that it merits as a Canadian issue, a book like this would be less necessary. And it's necessary because this information is not known in sort of so-called mainstream or establishment or status quo media circles even though there's exceptions to that and some of the stories have gotten some media coverage um, so our point is to bring it home and and not frame it as a Guatemalan problem but to say hey this is a Canadian problem though the harms are being suffered in this place called Guatemala let us take you there so that you can learn firsthand from from different writers different journalists and from victims themselves in their own words the harms they're suffering and what they think about it uh, and so it's not a provocative book in the, in that sense it's a fact-based book but if you read stuff like what you find in testimony for the first time it will provoke some emotional responses
0: it's interesting because I had I had very similar responses reading testimonial as I did reading um Harsha Walia's Border and Rule because in a sense, your book zeroes in on on things that she touches on in terms of the continued colonialism that exists with Canada going into um, the global south through mo- with mining companies and extracting resources, but we aren't having these conversations yeah. I mean they per- yeah. they percolate to the the surface a little bit like. You know, as we're starting to see the uptick of people buying electric cars, there's now concerns about what that will mean for mining, because where yeah. do the batteries come from for yeah, electric yeah. cars? Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's those are we're only getting those surface level conversations and those that surface level reporting, which is a l- much bigger media conversation. But, you know, I think there's so much. Work being done to protect false narratives about what it (laughs) means to be Canadian—that out of sight, out of mind uh, thing that you touch on in the book. Do you think that's changing? I guess is my question.
1: (laughs) We—I was um, when I someone sent me Parsha's book well before all this, before Testimonial had been finished publication, or this BC and Yukon Books um, Jim Diva Prize for writing that provokes, and so. I was obviously very glad that we were shortlisted. But I, when I saw her book on it, a year before, we'd already promoted her, her book on our listservs. And I I think it's just a very far-reaching book and a hugely important book. And I kind of think, in a way, Testimonial fits inside it. Testimonial is sort of almost fleshing out a certain section. Her arguments. Her arguments are broad and big and huge and very, I agree with them. Uh, um, the nation-state system on this planet is fundamentally part of the problem. The rich countries, the poor, we never question how any of this came about. We just sort of go, ooh, I'm lucky I live in this country called Canada. Oh, sure, must be unlucky to live over there in Haiti or Guatemala, as if these were disconnected things, as opposed to understanding them as part of, you know, the end result of centuries of imperialism, colonialism, post-colonialism, and I'm just deeply appreciative of her book, um, because it sets the broad picture inside of which a testimonial, I think, fits clearly. And I'd be interested to hear her comments on that. Um, but so I'm, I'm heartened <laughs> that, uh, her book won this, um, Jim Diva Prize. And then specifically to your question, yeah, things are changing ever so slowly. Um, and as they always do, change to systemic harms and violations systemic inequality of any kind is always slow work as as dire as the harms are that people are living in in their own lives because of systemic racism gender violence uh, global militarism of the rich powerful countries uh, the global economic order that's so profoundly unequal and unjust even as the harms people suffer are so dire and immediately changing systems takes generations or centuries at best. And so to focus narrowly in on mining, I think there's quite a significant, if not way too slow, shift going back to at least the early 2000s. And there's a slow awakening in Canada to the fact that Canada is the so-called mining capital of the world. And these stories are systematic and repetitive, as I said earlier, occurring around the world, particularly in countries of the global south, and there's fundamentally no political oversight in Canada whatsoever. There's fundamentally almost no way to hold our companies accountable in our legal system, neither in civil law or in criminal law, and this is for a country that just thumps its chest all the time about the rule of law and democracy, and yet we have utterly a vast sort of accountability gap that benefits us. And to sort of tie it together, where in the media, even though there are very serious recent exceptions to what I'm about to say, the media is not doing its job, the mainstream media, to report the the breadth and the depth of these issues around the planet. And I think we can see this, I can see the shift in my own activist life starting in the early 2000s right through till today, but it's ever so slow, it's ever so slow. (laughs)
0: I wanted, I I won't get you to talk too much about this, because I know it's, I mean, it's the preface of the book, but there were, I mean, it was a hard road for you to get this book into readers' hands, and I wondered how it's been since the book has come out. Have you had any more discussion, or has there been any more answers to those questions as to what happened uh, with your first publisher?
1: there's been zero answers and and little discussion more. And it's not like we don't want to talk about it, but Catherine and I are very clear that the real violations in the book, the real harms are not the fact that, uh, you know, the first publisher after leading us to the 99.9 yard line of the hundred yard dash, um, then pulled the whole thing up from under our feet that's not the real harm. Uh, they 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 screwed us, and they did it because, as they finally admitted in an email that I pro- I suspect they probably regret sending, they admitted, "Well, if we publish this, the third party will sue us," quote unquote. So we kind of knew <laughs> by the end of the game that something was up, and fortunately, we we engaged them in a very respectful but insistent uh back and forth communication over the course of months until they i think they were so tired of not telling the truth that one of them finally told us the truth and that's the last we ever heard of them yeah. um but that you know so i i'm just thankful they told us the truth because then we could sort of expose it and once we started asking the hard questions we never heard from them again and who is the third party we never heard um, it would take serious resources from someone to try and dig down um, through that. And I suspect they would never get anywhere because, for Springer Nature, is pretty significantly large publishing house. And I think they just wrapped it up and tied it off and put it away. I suspect it will never be known who the third party is or how is it they got a copy of the draft such that threatened lawsuits or whatever. Yeah. But it allowed us to then um, go forward and denounce that, which led to um, some some very, you know, important critical attention in Canada and then got us sort of quite, a, in our view, quite a significant Canadian publisher to express interest and pick up on it. And it's trickled forward. There has been some, uh, you know, the CBC picked up on it. Uh, so The Current did a really decent interview about it. Um, and then a fair bit of sort of alternative media, or whatever you want to call it, it's gone as far as I ever thought it would go, and I'm very appreciative of it. And I hope it keeps going, because I think it's 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 fact-based reporting with a proper analysis of the role of and responsibility of Canada. So we'll we'll just use it and go forward with it. We just finished a, a new fact-finding trip three days ago here in Guatemala following up on the very things that are set out in the book so we will we will give it an ongoing life of its own however it plays itself out in, in in the public in Canada
0: yeah I just it as you mentioned I mean the true violations are what's shared in the book but it really highlighted um you know just the the lengths that that these powers that these mining companies will go to 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 keep these stories silent and to protect kind of that, like I said, the false narrative about what Canada is. I think there is a lot at work trying to keep things away in in other places and not here at home.
1: Oh yeah. And I think to pick up on that, I mean, we came through well. Uh, It, uh, it didn't quash the book. We were able to shift and, and got, got the appropriate attention and a very good publisher to pick up on it. But it does make me reflect back on um, the work by Alain Deneau and others when they wrote this book, Africa Noir, I think it's called, Af- Africa Noir, about, I believe, Barrett Gold in Africa. and I don't know all the details, but that book was successfully squashed its publication in English documenting a lot of very serious violations and harms committed by Barraco directly, with their knowledge, in Africa. Equally as serious violations as we set out in testimonial, if not worse. And they made the life of, as I understand it, uh, Alain Deno, they made his life hell. And some of the other people he'd worked with on the book. Um, so... Uh, ours is sort of is a common tale in many ways, and and it speaks to the experience of other people who have tried to, you know, report on and publish stories that go against sort of the status quo of or establishment interests of a country like Canada or the US. And we came through well, though. And so <laughs> I, I, I just can't complain about it, how it played itself out. But the story, telling the story is important because it is a common thing mm-hmm. and um, it, it makes it all the harder it makes one realize how hard it is to tell the stories to a wide audience about what canadian companies are doing around the world including in a place called known as guatemala yeah
0: you mentioned in the the introduction to the book and, and in reading the book, there is, I mean, there's a lot to be angry about. There's a lot to be outraged about, but there's also a lot to be inspired. There's so much that's inspiring in the book as well. I wondered if you could speak to what's happening in Guatemala these days and what is inspiring you to see change, even if it's slow, happening there.
1: I, I agree with you on the what you're saying about the book, and, and there's a lot that's very inspiring, particularly the, the dignity and strength of the people who suffer so much and then uh, survive so much and then become truth-tellers and protagonists in their own community defence struggles. And we often talk in, in our work of sort of that that three-step, it's not a three-step process, but these the three aspects of sort of being a victim, a survivor, and a protagonist. So all the people that Rights Action supports in these four different mining struggles, and we get the funds to, and we visit with, and do these fact-finding delegations with, they are victims, survivors, protagonists in the story. And that is every single day, inspiring by definition. And I have the privilege of working in a group that gets to work with them and get to know them very well and support them in very small ways. The the amount of funding we get to these people in groups is tiny. And yet, um, on they go. But I also, at a given point, it's it's just daunting inspiration because the situation in Guatemala, uh, that book was sort of wrapped up in 2020. I think we had our final sort of final, final edit um, in late 2020. The situation in Guatemala is just getting worse. And honestly, the the, the bootprint of Canadian mining companies in Guatemala is growing. <laughs> so, we just finished this eight day trip, and we visited four mining resistance struggles in Guatemala. Three of which are documented in the book, and a new one. And the new ones and another Canadian comp- mining company, Bluestone Resources, and the situations are status quo as set out in the book, or getting worse. And the Canadian government continues, through the embassy down here, continues to play a silent and deeply complicit role in all this. So <laughs> that's sort of the short-term impact of our book on the Canadian government and its policies, like zero. Thank you, BC um, and Yukon Books, for, you know, both um, recognizing this book, but also, quite seriously, um, Harsha Walia's book, Board and Rule... I, if anyone's just interested in taking sort of a very critical look at how, what Canada is and how it operates as a, as a nation state in the very unjust global order today, um, in quite an imperialist and colonialist way, ongoing imperialism, ongoing colonialist way, read Harsha's book. And then if you want to look specifically at a major Canadian industry and how it impacts around the world, then read Testimonial, and then give your head a shake and then get in touch with us and see how you might want to get involved and uh, and support and get involved with very good work going on across Canada um, to address these issues.
0: That was Graham Russell. Graham co-edited Testimonio, Canadian Mining in the Aftermath of Genocides in Guatemala with Catherine Nolan. Testimonio was a finalist for the 2022 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, I speak to Vancouver's Poet Laureate, Fiona Tinway-Lam. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.